Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the apostle of speed, Coach Trevor Connor. Cycling can be a fickle sport. Coaches come and go. New, exciting, revolutionary ways of training take the sport by storm, then grow stale. Riders at the local training race who were once unbeatable age and fade from the front. Few things have permanence in this sport, but there's been one thing that has stood the test of time. That seems to have been there since most of us attempted our first interval workout, and that is Joe Friel's Cyclist Training Bible. For many of us, reading that book was our first step towards more dedicated training. This spring, Joe released his fifth and hopefully not the last edition of the book. Trevor and I had a chance to talk with Joe about the latest edition. We came to the interview with a list of questions that we felt only touched on the key parts of the book. By the hour mark, we were barely a quarter of the way through our list. But what we did talk about was really compelling stuff. Touched on everything from periodization to energy system to Joe's method of research. Believe it or not, it has a lot to do with hundreds of 3x5 note cards. More on that later in the show. What is the central theme of this podcast? Perhaps we'll just call it picking the brain of one of the most experienced cycling coaches in the world. Our varied topics included how Joe's philosophy to coaching has changed over the five editions of the book and why with this most recent edition he decided to completely rewrite the book. How new technology has changed coaching and why Joe recommends a shift from volume-focused training to a training stress focus what we mean by intensity and how both polarized and sweet spot training play in. The three physiological assets that determine our level as cyclists, specifically aerobic capacity or VO2 max, anaerobic threshold and economy. And finally, we touch on periodization. Joe is the one who brought periodization to cycling and unfortunately we were barely able to scratch the surface on this fascinating subject. Hopefully we can convince Joe to come back for an entire episode on the topic. In fact, there is plenty in the book we don't even mention, but there's a reason it's called The Training Bible. In addition to Joe Friel, our guests today include Frank Overton, the owner of Fast Cat Coaching in Boulder, Colorado. Frank has been a part of the history of cycling himself, helping in the early days when they were just figuring out the power-based metrics we now take for granted. Even Frank remembers the cyclist training Bible influencing him as a Cat 4 cyclist. Yeah, right. Frank was never a Cat 4. He was born a Cat 1. And we talked with Lotto NL Yumbo rider Sepp Kuss, who gives a very modern pro perspective on periodization. It's not the old school traditional periodization of a dedicated base period and race phase. Unfortunately, we ran out of time to talk with Joe more about this subject, but one of the big changes in the latest edition of the book is an entire chapter on the various periodization alternatives. Please forgive the quality of Coach Connor's audio for this podcast. We recorded the, the podcast the day before he raced at Canadian Nationals. He was up in northern Quebec. The internet connection wasn't great, nor was Trevor's stress level. So, with the power vested in me, let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Normatech. Dial in the most advanced recovery for your body with Normatech's patented compression massage technology. Riders like Taylor Finney, Tom Skunch, and the BMC Racing Team all rely on Normatech to get them through the daily grind of professional cycling. 
Normatec increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Stop by the Normatec 10 at the Colorado Classic to try it for yourself and feel what everybody is talking about. If you could give us a, a brief introduction to yourself and maybe even highlights of the, the first book and the number of editions and things like that, that'd be great. Sure. Okay. I, um, uh, I've been coaching since about 1980. And, uh, oh gosh, um, as far as books are concerned, I wrote the first one in first cyclist training Bible. This is the first book I ever wrote. I wrote that about 1996. I've written a total of 16 books, which I, I, I take the last book I've written, you know, the cyclist training Bible edition number five as the 16th book because it's not the same as it's not just a rewrite of the first book. It's a completely new book. So it's been, a, it's been a busy 22 years or so of writing. You know, I, I don't know what else to tell you besides that. Uh, are you, are you still been, actively coaching? No, I quit coaching a few years ago. I had gotten to the point. I realized that I'd never really had a real vacation since 1980. Cause every time I'd go on vacation, you know, my clients were not on vacation. They were still training. I'm so I was still coaching. Still people in the back of my mind, what are, what are they doing? How's their workouts going? Checking things daily, you know, online and all that kind of stuff. And so finally I decided, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's time to, uh, to hang it up. So I quit coaching and now all I do really is I coach coaches and do some writing. It's been kind of fun. I actually, <laughs> as opposed to being always on, you know, always on, always ready to deal with an athlete's uh, training issues. And so it's been, it's been kind of, kind of nice. I'm yeah, saying. no, you're never off the clock when you're a coach. No, Ever. you're never done. It goes all day long, 24-7. Yep. No, I've had athletes. I, I, I've had a couple times athletes send me an email at midnight on a Friday asking what they should do for their, their 8 a.m. ride on a Saturday, and they're upset I didn't get back to them. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I recall those days. <laughs> you, you said right at the start of the book that this is essentially a – a complete rewrite of the book. So I think that's a, a great place to start of why rewrite it. I mean, this is, this book is, as the title says, really the, the, the Bible of cycling training. It's been around for a long time. It's well-established. Everybody's heard of it. What motivated you to, to, to a rewrite? Well, I had done edits on it three times on the original book uh, over the years, over many, many years. So my publisher was suggesting, I've forgotten when this was, probably about 2015 or 16, perhaps it was, that I should consider doing another edit or revision of the original book, or at least of the, of the fourth edition. And I realized that each time I had done that, the previous three times, it, it got harder each time because, you know, if you make a change in chapter two, that's got down you know, downstream considerations of so things in chapters five, nine, and 12 have to be changed to, to accommodate the change you made in chapter two. And, and those have other ramifications on things that, that affect them. And it, it just became this gigantic, uh, it was becoming more difficult every time I did it. And I could see it with the number of things I, I wanted to change that it was going to be a gigantic project to try to edit it. it much easier just to throw the entire manuscript away and start from scratch. So, I finally decided to do that, and the only thing I kept the same was the table of contents. I made small changes to it, but otherwise, it, I just threw away the books and started with a blank sheet of paper and started writing. 
Well, we certainly should point out, I mean, when you wrote the first book, nobody was on power meters. People were just right. starting to pick up heart rate monitors. There wasn't training peaks. There wasn't WKO. You know, most people were recording their workouts on a sheet of paper. So it seems like that had to have a big impact as well, that there, there's technology now that just wasn't available in the first edition. Yeah, that's for sure. When, the first, when I wrote the first book, uh, I had borrowed a power meter from uh, SRM. Back in like about 95, I think it was, they loaned me one for a summer for three months to try it out because I couldn't afford to buy one. And so when I wrote the book, I, I, I could see this thing is going to have value in the future. So I had like, I've forgotten, a, a page in the, in the entire book on power. That was it. <laughs> there was like one page on power. And I mentioned it in the, in the uh, epilogue that I thought it was going to be of some significance someday. And that, by the way, is which led was what led to PowerTap. That sentence I wrote, that they kind of caught their attention, some people's attention who were, who were cyclists and, and uh, engineers. And they decided to come up with something that would contribute to the sport. So they came up with this PowerTap idea. And it, all, it came out of that, that sentence I wrote in the book that I thought it was going to be valuable in the future. And lo and behold, it has. It's just revolutionizes the way cycling is done, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. So I'm not going to deal with that now but that that was the reason i made the change or decided to rewrite the book is because there was just so much stuff and a big part of this was technology and i I just couldn't go back and just keep putting band-aids on things i'd said about technology starting you know in 1996 that wasn't going to work it it was just too significant of change in fact it it changed dramatically since the since the, the fourth edition came out which is just a few years before the most recent one and so, you know, I just saw the need to change the entire book by because of things like that. And that wasn't the only thing. There was there was all kinds of stuff going on, changes taking place that needed to be addressed. And so that's how it came came to be with the fifth edition. So something I have really wanted to ask you about, and, and give me a minute because this is going to take me a, a little bit to explain. But you know, I can tell you my, my own history as a cyclist, I, I started getting into it in the 90s. And, and I remember... I basically was doing everything wrong. And and a friend told me about this whole idea of, you know, you should change what you're doing at what point in the season, you should have harder weeks, easier weeks. And and I thought he was crazy. Why wouldn't you just train hard all the time? And he told me about your, and this was first edition of the book. And, and, you know, I'll say, I mean, it really revolutionized cycling because you were the one who brought the, the, the whole concept of periodization to cycling. But something I have always found really interesting, and again, so give me just one minute to explain this. The, the two books that I read to start out with were, were the, your book, the first edition, and then Jack Daniels' Running For Me. Sure. And something that I used to love to, to point out to some of my athletes about kind of differences of approaches is in, and, and I apologize, I'm up in Quebec. I wish I had brought them with me so I could give the exact quotes. But there was a page in your first edition that said pretty close to the most important thing is to have a training plan and a coach. And then there was a a page in Jack Daniel's book that said the least important thing to have is a training plan and a coach. (laughs) And he goes on to explain that, saying the reason being is half the plans and half the coaches out there are worse than no plan at all. And I always kind of love that contrast of there, you know, even with the, you know, some of the best coaches out there, there's kind of difference of approaches, difference of opinions. But I did notice in this edition and where you said that was very 
early in the first edition. This one, you started out much more talking about principles, talking about mindset. And I absolutely loved, I got the page 90 in the book and you wrote, a rigidly followed plan that doesn't allow for breaks from training when you are overly tired and doesn't consider the many other lifestyle demands of your time is worse than no plan at all. Mm. So, you know, I can't do that anymore, put these books side by side and say, look at the contrast here. But I did, you know, that was something that I always remembered about the first book. And it was something that as I was reading this, I really wanted to ask you about is, you know, was I completely misinterpreting the first book or is this uh, a view that has evolved with you over the years? I think think that's one of the nuances that I was talking about earlier that, you know, as I as I grew as a coach, I, I and when I say grew as a coach, I mean I came in contact with more athletes. As I became more aware of what they were doing, it was obvious people were doing things. You know, they'd they'd read my book and they'd come up with a plan, but they'd come up with such a ridiculously difficult, uh, unrealistic plan that it was like having it was worse than no plan at all. And I've seen that happen so many times that I, that's kind of where that came from. It's from just being around a lot more athletes for another 20 years and uh, seeing the same things over and over and over and over from people that they kept making the same mistakes. And so that that's basically how the, the thought you just described, how that, that passage came to be. So it is that that recognition that you, you do have to be careful with these plans and, and really know what you're doing to to have an effect. Uh, I find that that fascinating because, you know, we've been one, one of the things I love about this this podcast is we get coaches and, and physiologists on the show who are far more experienced, far smarter than me. And you get this opportunity to kind of see how they view things and how they approach things. And that does seem to be a common theme that planning is not sufficient. You, you have to be able to read yourself. You have to um, be able to day to day know how to adjust, and, and that's potentially some of the the biggest secrets of training. And it seems like that was one of the the big themes in this new book of when you were talking about the not the mindset of having a purpose to every ride and, and knowing when to adjust your rides. Right. Yeah. I, I the book still follows much of what I talked about in the first book. You know, periodization plans, for example, as you mentioned, and coming up with a a plan that. Uh, gives direction to your training. But then late in the book, I talk about, I actually kind of throw in a, a curveball there based on what I, we just, I just talked about. And that was the discussion about recovery versus adaptation in that uh, they're not the same thing. And that sometimes it's better for an athlete to be very open-ended about their, about the recovery process, which now being taken to mean to include adaptation. And sometimes plans don't do that. Sometimes athletes don't know how they're going to feel when they get to a certain point in the season. They just have, they haven't experienced what they're planning to do. And when they get there, they discover the load is much greater than they thought it was going to be. Now what do they do? Do they continue on? Do they press ahead with the same plan? Or do they make changes to it because of what they're experiencing? And my point in, this, in that later chapter where I talk about recovery and adaptation is that the most important thing is adaptation. It's not recovery. The most important thing is adaptation. That, that's the reason why we train is to adapt. If you didn't adapt, what the hell would be the reason for going out there and doing workouts? And, and to, to express, to explain that, for example, uh, uh, the difference between a recovery and adaptation, there's lots of research showing that hot and cold alternating immersions or baths speed up recovery. 
there's not a single research study that shows it speeds up adaptation. So right. you may feel like you're recovered because you've done certain things. You've used, you've got a massage or you've done all these things that we, we all know about, but that doesn't mean you're adapted. Your body, we don't know right now, we don't know of any way to speed up the adaptive process. It's a biological phenomenon, which, which is really beyond what we know about sports science right now. But it's at the heart of what we're talking about here. And so the issue is that you've got to be able to differentiate these two terms, recovery and adaptation, and not be focused just on recovery, but also realize you've got to give your body a chance to, to adapt. And so what does that mean? Well, that means especially sleep, um, which is when hormones kick in and, and the body actually goes through the process of becoming stronger, if you will. And so even though I've talked about having a plan, I'm now toward the end of the book talking about how you've got to be ready to deviate from that plan because of the need to, um, to adapt as opposed to simply recover. So I tried to, you know, I tried to sneak that in toward the end because I wanted the person, the athlete, the reader to understand that all these other things are important, but this now becomes one of the most important things you have to also give consideration to. How are you adapting? So I actually wrote an article a couple of years ago on recovery modalities. I think it's probably the most boring article I ever wrote because <laughs> you look at the most recent research and really where they seem to be heading is the, these things that make you feel better, like ice baths and ibuprofen and, and a lot of these things people use to recover. They, they block the inflammation, which is what causes the pain. Right. So you feel better. But we actually need that inflammation for the adaptation. So they show yeah, that you know, icing and these things can actually slow down uh, the adaptation process. That's and, right. and basically, the, the gist of my whole article was get out of your body's way. Let it, let it do its thing. Yeah, you really can't, you can't rush adaptation. It's got a process it has to go through. We can screw it up more, more easily than we can, uh, can, we, we can rush it. So it, it's a huge challenge right now. It's really on the, on the cutting edge, I would say, of sports science is what's adaptation all about. And, you know, how, how can we make sure we're doing it correctly? That's, that's on the leading edge of where we are right now. And I, I by no, no means have the answer to that question. I'm just posing a, another issue for the athlete to consider that adaptation is every bit as important as recovery is, in fact, much more so. And it's the reason we do all this training. And your, and your point is well taken that ibuprofen and even even vitamins have been shown to to screw up the adaptive process. And so we sometimes get in our own way by doing things like that because we think it's going to be good for us and it has just the opposite effect on us. Is yeah. that is that why um, the, the fact that this is there's a lot of uh, unknowns here about adaptation is it's uh, an emerging component to to training? Is that why it ended up so far back in the book? It, it sounds like you're well aware of its importance to the overall process of, of training, but it sounds like you, you know, yes. you use the word snip, snuck it in at the end. It sounds that contradicts itself a little bit. Yeah. I, I say I snuck it in because I, I, uh, I really can't give answers. I can only ask questions when it comes to that, that issue. And rather than confuse people during the process of how do you decide what periodization plan is best for you, which is what a chapter early in the book is, is all about and muddy the waters within that chapter, I decided to hold on to it till late in the book where I could discuss it as a, a topic all of its own within the context of the, of the table of contents I created back in 1996. And so that's how it got there. It would have been confusing, I think, to, to put it in right in with all the other stuff on periodization. 
but at some point the issue needed to be raised. Mm-hmm. I still remember the year I decided to get serious about my cycling. My symbolic first step was spending my vacation sitting by my grandmother's swimming pool reading the cyclist training bible. Nowadays, I'm an old man of cycling. Chris may even call me antiquitous. But I was a young, inexperienced rider back then. For even those of us who seemed to have been around for a while, we were guided by pioneers like Joe. Frank Overton, the founder of Fast Cat Coaching, who has been a part of the cycling scene for a long time, has a similar story of Joe Friel influencing him from the very beginning. I moved to Colorado in uh, 1997 um, in the fall. And uh, then I, like a month or two later, I heard about this thing called the Velo Swap. And uh, I went down there with like $75 in my pocket and I came away with a used cyclist training Bible and a pair of Kreitler rollers. And that book was at the time, one of the only sources for endurance training out there. I wasn't a coach at a time. At the time, I didn't even know I was going to become a coach. I believe I was a cat four road racer and like a, what was then called a sport class or expert class mountain biker. So I was just kid in a candy shop and I read that book. It was kind of complicated to me. I, I, I didn't quite get all of it, but I gathered what I could from it and set apart, set about you know my training and my quest to, to get faster. Once I became a coach, a few years later, back then Joe and uh, his wife used to offer coaching coaching seminars, uh, coaching business seminars, and uh, I took one from them. It was a weekend course on a Saturday, Sunday here in Boulder, the Millennium Hotel. They went through all sorts of things of how to run a successful coaching business. And uh, the coaching industry was uh, just fledgling. There weren't that many people doing it. And there was a lot of information out there that we didn't know that Joe had uh, um, figured out. And that's what this seminar was. So that was my first, you know, face-to-face interaction with, with Joe. And then the Training Peaks thing, he and uh, Dirk um, launched, uh, founded Training Peaks, and we, you know, we we use Training Peaks to this day, and it's wonderful. And last summer at uh, the Training Peaks Endurance Coaching Summit, Joe gave the keynote address. It was wonderful. It was uh, twenty or thirty minutes, and he, you know, told his story from running shop retailer to, uh, you know, forming a community. And he kind of just, you know, told us the way that he fell into coaching. It was never planned. And the way that he uh, marketed it himself and got his name out there and just the evolution of that. And he, he, he said he quickly discovered he liked talking about run training uh, more than he liked selling shoes and the thing. And, you know, he just said, you know, just told the, the wonderful story of how he, he transitioned from a running store retailer into the, the coaching business and in, in his journey since then. So that, that's, that's my uh, interaction with uh, Joe Freely. I think he's kind of the, the godfather <laughs> of, uh, of the coaching industry. Um, we've all ridden the wave, you know, kind of uh, come up underneath. So what do you feel his his big impact was? Putting it out there, first and foremost. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He just put out all his knowledge, like competitive intelligence to all all the other coaches. And so I think that's a major contribution. I was just uh, perusing his blog before we uh, we came on here. And, uh, you know, he's writing about 
some really complicated subjects and people will write to him and he'll, he'll publish, you know, what they were asking about. And you just don't get that from a coach that's been doing it a couple of years. Let's get back to the show. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the specifics of your approach, maybe some of even your biases in the, the training philosophies that you're showing in the book. Trevor, did you want to start things off by talking about um, his use of TSS and, and intensity-centric training? Yeah. So it seems like in the book, one of your major themes is that we need to shift away from this very old school viewpoint of training is all about duration. The, the, more, you, the more time you spend on the bike, the fitter you're going to get. And really towards this intensity-centric centric training. I was really interested in what you mean by that and what exactly you mean by intensity and how you use that for training. Yeah, when, when the book came out back in the 90s, I, I think the most common way athletes decided how to train was to look to see what Europe, European professionals were doing. And they were basically putting in a lot of time on the saddle. And so that became kind of the, the nexus of of how to train in this country was just get a lot of saddle time. I've never fully accepted that. I should back up one step here. There certainly is value to training volume, duration. You can't just train two hours a week and expect to be able to do well in, in races. There's some volume required to some level, but there's a point at which it becomes simply a burden as opposed to something which actually improves performance. And I'm afraid too many athletes just don't realize that. They always see the solution to their achieving their goal is to simply do more time, more hours, more miles, more kilometers. The research doesn't support that. Uh, if you look at research, and this, there's been all kinds of studies on this where they'll have one group who basically does tremendous duration at low intensity, another group, group who does moderate uh, duration at a high intensity. And as long as we're talking about advanced athletes, not novices, the high-intensity group always produces the best performances. Uh, so it's kind of like a given. It's not like it's, it's, it's anything here to be debated. We've got this has been resolved for a long, long time. It goes back to the 1980s with studies on this topic. And so consequently, the, the issue is getting the balance between duration and intensity correct. And uh, that's why I introduced the concept of training stress score, TSS, in the book, which is something we've been using uh, at Turning Peaks when I say we – since uh, early 2000s, mid-2000s, that began to open my eyes to how we can actually put a number on, on, on intensity. It's, you know, if you, if you ask any athlete, how's your training going? The way they'll answer that question is with volume. Well, they will, they'll say, well, last year at this time, I was doing 15 hours a week on the bike, and now I'm doing 17 hours a week on the bike. Implication being I'm more fit now because I'm doing more hours. But that doesn't necessarily mean more fit. It's just more hours is more hours. That's all it is. So it's very easy to express duration. It's not easy at all to express intensity. So I ask the athlete, well, how's your intensity been this season? They can't tell you that. There's absolutely no way they can express it. It's, it's, a, right. it's obviously something they understand, but they can't give you a number. They can't say 17 hours a week. They just can't. They can tell you about a workout they did and what they did in that workout and how compared with a year ago, it's the same workout but they can't explain intensity to you. And so this is where this TSS concept comes in. It's based on this thing called intensity factor. Part of it is anyway, based in part on intensity factor. Intensity factor is the derivative of, of one's normalized power divided by their FTP. 
But intensity is simply how much power did you produce relative to your FTP? And so you've got to get your FTP right, which is always a starting place. And that then gives you this way of expressing what the, the real measure of uh, improvement is, which is training stress score, as opposed to simply how many hours did you put on the saddle? So that's that's the thinking that's going on here. And that that wasn't expressed at all back in the early portion of the book, the early, you know, the first edition had no expression of that whatsoever. There was talk about intensity, but it was kept as a separate item from duration. They weren't seen as being ever meshed together into one into one number, for example. So what's happened is cycling has gone, dating back to now the 1990s, gone from being perhaps the worst sport, the worst endurance sport in the world in terms of science, to being the best sport in the world in terms of science. Back in the 1990s, the leader was swimming. Why? Because they measured lactate in the pool. You know, they took blood samples by pricking the athlete's finger or earlobe and then looking at how much lactate was in the blood and drawing conclusions about what the intensity of the workout was and so forth. That was the pinnacle. Cycling was still talking about how many hours you put in the saddle. That was science as far as cycling is concerned. Swimming adopted the whole periodized training concept long before cycling did. Yeah, they did. It's, uh, swimming has been a world leader in all this stuff. But now, quite honestly, because of a lack of um, measurement devices – such as power meters that cyclists have, they're really falling well, well behind the other sports. But cycling has become really the, uh, the, the sport that we need to, that all sports need to be measuring themselves against right now. It's only because of the power meter, and it's only because of one person coming along, uh, Andy Coggin, and saying, you know, these are some things we ought to think about in terms of how to use a power meter. And he's begun to, he's revolutionized cycling which is revolutionizing the world of training we now talk about things in for example in running and swimming that we never talked about before until we talked about them Coggin talked about them first in in cycling so the whole thing is evolving but now cycling is leading the way is is the cool thing i think about this entire topic one of the the geniuses that, that dr Coggin brought to the cycling world was Power meter was a great tool, but it was an external measure. It really didn't show what was going on physiologically. Sure. And with TSS, he found a way to take this external measure and to show what's going on inside the body, to translate it using FTP as kind of a Rosetta Stone, to translate it, here's what's going on inside you. And, and that's, that's, you know, the TSS, as you said, it's, it's based on your, your FTP. And, and for any of our listeners who don't know that the simple explanation is it takes each zone and has a multiplier, and then you add it all together. So an hour at zone one might produce the same amount or even less T TSS than just a couple minutes at, at your highest zone. Right. That's true. How, how has the, uh, the, the algorithm behind TSS, has that changed over time as you've learned more about the science behind it uh, or just worked with the, the, the sort of the details of the software itself? No, it really hasn't. The concept has remained the same. It's without getting into the the, the uh, sports science behind it. It's basically the highest power output an athlete can maintain for roughly an hour. And when I say that, that's where it starts getting real muddy. Yep. Because it really isn't that definition. But that's that's the way everybody can kind of understand what we're talking about here. When you start getting into the you know maximum lactate steady state stuff, it starts getting real hairy with with science and it's just easier to keep it simple for right now that it's roughly how long an athlete or the, the power an athlete can can put out for roughly an hour but it's 
that again is a, is a crude definition. Chris was actually asking one of the things that, that we are both really interested in, and I might be completely off base here, but as I remember when Dr. Coggin was originally coming up with a lot of these concepts, he was, he was working with a few other people who were really interested in the sweet spot concept. And I noticed that in the book, you have a, a great summary of the polarized approach. So, you know, Seiler's concept of the, the three zones based on your aerobic threshold and, and your anaerobic threshold. And it seems like you're a big proponent uh, of the polarized approach. And I have heard from physiologists, so, you know, eight, nine years ago, talking to a few physiologists in the field, the, the one criticism they had at TSS was they felt it was very sweet spot bias, that you got the highest scores by just riding sub-threshold. And it does, and maybe I'm just imagining this, but it does seem like it's changed where now it's a little more biased towards a, a polarized approach, where you get a much higher TSS score from that higher intensity work. But that's yeah, not the case. I think when you when you get into this topic now, we're starting to get into deviations on uh, how to how to train, and TSS becomes kind of the, the crux of that discussion, because obviously different ways you can achieve a certain TSS score. But yeah, it's true. Uh, since somebody focuses on sweet spot, that in a way kind of negates uh, polarized training, and yet I'm not sure that really has to happen that way. In, in a way. Um, these are these are uh, contradictory. Sweet spot implies staying at a point which is you know somewhat below the FTP or which is roughly the equivalent of anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold for long periods of time. Uh, whereas polarized training implies that you spend a great deal of time at very low intensities below the aerobic threshold, and then um, get in a smaller more portion of time, twenty percent roughly, at above the lactate or anaerobic threshold. So there's, there's, there's some discussion going on here still within the sport about how to do this. And I've quite honestly not tried to be too precise about this, although in the book I tried to be, a lot, I suppose, a little bit more precise than I am in reality. You know, I, I kind of apply, I kind of use it both ways. I, I think an athlete needs to get a lot of training, roughly the 80% concept, below their aerobic, at or below their aerobic threshold. And I say at because I have athletes, I would have athletes do a lot of training at their aerobic threshold. But I also employ using sweet spot at certain times in the season for athletes. And at other times, they're doing things well above the, uh, the threshold or the FTP. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's carved in stone that you're going to do the same 80-20 relative to the thresholds, aerobic and anaerobic, throughout the year. It's going to be divided over the course of seasons, periodization, where sometimes you're doing 80-20, but other times you're doing uh, 90-10, or you're doing you know 70-30, or something like that, because you're getting ready for a certain event, and certain the event is the reason we train. We don't just train to achieve numbers; we train to achieve outcomes in races. And so sometimes it's important to train in a way that that meets the demands of the event. And that's not always going to be 80-20. So I'm a little bit of a heretic when it comes to the 80-20, but I believe the concept is really solid. You really can't argue that dividing the training with a great deal at the low intensity and, and, and a much smaller amount at high intensity is beneficial because there's been so much research that supports this. So that's kind of where how I hedge my bets on this thing when it comes to reality. I think that's a, a really important distinction is when you say in the book that you're shifting from a duration-centric to intensity-centric 
training, you're not saying you should be doing intensity all the time, which is becoming popular with a lot of cyclists right now. You're, you're talking about monitoring your intensity. So intensity, you're referring to you have low intensity rides, you have high intensity rides. And, and you even talk in the book about you got to be really careful about high intensity, how much of it you do, the time of the year you do it. And you can get yourself in trouble if you do too much. That's true. Yeah, agreed. That, that's exactly the point I was trying to make in the book is what you just described. A- athletes take the word intensity to mean high intensity only. Intensity right. doesn't mean that. It means it means all intensity. It's, it's very, very easy, you know, 50% FTP up to whatever, you know, 180% of FTP for a couple of seconds uh, sort of thing. This is all intensity. It's just a matter of how we divide it up. And that's what 80-20 is about, how we're going to divide intensity over the course of the season. And I'm only suggesting that it should change based on periodization. Dial in the most advanced recovery for your body with Normatec's patented compression massage technology. Riders like Taylor Finney, Tom Skoinch, and the BMC racing team all rely on Normatec to get them through the daily grind of professional cycling. Normatec increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Stop by the Normatec tent at the Colorado Classic to try it for yourself and feel what everybody is talking about. Can I ask sort of about how you how you come to these to these places to to form this philosophy? How much of the literature are you reading? How much are you learning from working with athletes? And has it always been the the same, or have you evolved to rely on one more than the other over the course of your coaching? Yeah, good question. This this goes way way back for me before I was even coaching, uh, or at least before I was coaching cyclists. I was a high school track and field coach at one time back in the 70s. But in the 70s, I got my master's in in exercise science. And I was introduced to the concept of research, which I'd never really paid much attention to before the 1970s, mid-70s. And it really kind of opened my eyes, but it it was a real hassle to keep up with any kind of research at all back in the 70s and into the 80s, because you'd have to go to a library someplace, usually at a college, go to the place where all the, the journals are kept that are related to the field you're interested in, and then thumb through them and see what's going on right now. It's just a gigantic process to do this. And that began to change, for me at least, in the uh, 1980s because I was subscribing to a lot of publications that kept me informed of what was going on with the research, and I'd never seen that before the 1980s. It was basically uh, research news. What's the latest stuff in research? And so I was reading all this, and that was prompting me to go out and find specific research studies to verify what I was reading in these news publications. And so the whole thing began to evolve. And so I decided back in the 80s, I was going to pay much more attention to um, the research. And so I started, I began to, whenever I could find a research study or even just abstracts of research studies, I would make copies of them without telling the librarian and, and store them. And so I began to develop a kind of a stack of, of all these studies I wanted to read. And so I just kept them on my desk and it was always the stack. And every day when I got up, the first thing I would do is I'd take off, you know, the study on the top of the stack 
and read what that study was about. And if I found something that was of interest that I thought may be beneficial to my coaching or to my philosophy of training, I would uh, write it on a three by five card. This is before computers. So I'd write it on a three by five card. On one side, I'd write the summary of the study on one side of the card, and the other side was the reference material. So I could pull it back up again, you know, the authors and all that kind of stuff. And so, so, I, so this is happening every day. And so consequently, over the course of decades, I still do that. Over the course of decades, three by five cards begin to pile up on me. And so I started categorizing them by topics and within, uh, you know, files, paper files. So it all started on three by five cards for me back in the 80s. And then when computers came around, I had already had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these cards that were stored in boxes by categories. And so it was just going to be too much to, to make any changes. So I kept on doing the same thing. Even when computers came around, I'm still writing them a three by five card. <laughs> and to this day, I still do it that way. I still write a three by five card. How does your wife my, feel about this? Well, my wife, she took up the project of one day. And she decided this had to be fixed in case, for example, there was a fire someday and all my cards were lost, <laughs> you know, 30 years, 40 years of, of work down the drain. Mm. So she started putting it all on computer, on Excel files. And so they're all saved for me now. So I've got them both ways. But quite honestly, the, the way I still do it is whenever I got a topic I'm interested in, I go to, the, to the, the box, pull out the tab with all the cards behind that tab that I'm interested on the topic and begin to you know, sort the cards in ways that fit my needs which is what I do when I write a book. You know, I've decided well, I need to write about this topic in the book, so I'll pull out the cards and I'll, I'll arrange them in the ways that are meaningful for me or discard those that don't mean I don't want to use on this particular topic. And so the whole thing has evolved over time, but that's, that's how it got started because I knew I was all, everything up until that point, 80s, had been based on reactions or working with athletes and, and even myself. You know, what was I experiencing as an athlete? How did I see the world from my own experience? How did I see it from the experience of the athletes I was coaching? And that was the crux of what I was doing. And I decided that that wasn't enough. I needed to also include what was going on in the world of science to marry these things together so I could be a more well-rounded coach. And so the whole thing grew in, in that way, kind of like Topsy. It just, it just kind of grew. It was no plan. So Chris, knowing how much of a geek I, I am, before we, we called you, we had to talk about the book. And uh, being a geek, I was definitely very excited about all the science you, you pulled in here. I mean, your, your summary of the two thresholds and, and polarized was spot on with the research. And thank you for saying that it's not lactic acid, it's hydrogen ion. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, the, you, you explained it in, in great terms, but the, the influence of the science was uh, uh, quite a book. And one of the things that I really love is you talk about the, uh, the three assets you say basically there's three assets that we can develop. They're the, the only three assets, and, and you make the argument you're not going to believe, but this is really it, uh, which was your aerobic capacity, anaerobic threshold, and economy. And as soon as I saw that, I mean, there's this great 2008 review by Dr. Joyner and Dr. Coyle, which was, was a, uh, you know, a pretty groundbreaking review called Endurance Exercise Performance, The Physiology of Champions, and it really looked at what are the the attributes that separate the the top from amateurs? And those were the three things. You bet. Yeah, that's that's kind of been a given up until this point. There's been lots of uh, it's become more nuanced than it was when I first came in, came to that topic a long long time ago. But that's that's true. It's still the the crux of training are, are really those three things. 
Well, interestingly, you picked economy and they talked about efficiency. And I actually quite agree with you there because economy includes efficiency, but it's more expensive. Aerodynamics factor in. I agree with that. Efficiency is a subset, as I see it, of economy. Yep. So that was that was a nice subtle change, but you, you explained that really well. Thanks. <laughs> it's funny when we uh, before we 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 called you up, Joe, um, Trevor, and I were talking about things, and I could just tell how excited he was because <laughs> he's he is geeky, nerdy, whatever you want to call him. He he is a man that studies the literature and knows his science extremely well. I I could just see how excited he was because you and and Trevor have ver- come to very similar conclusions on a lot of things. So I just wanted How's to, right? yeah, yeah. You must be a very, very smart guy then, Trevor. <laughs> well, he, Chris he and would... I talked about that. We said we, we, we have very similar viewpoints. You just have 40 years and a heck of a lot more reading on me. So uh, when we were talking about it, I said, Chris, I, I have some of the same viewpoints as him. It's not that he has the same viewpoints as me. I'm catching up. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass along my three by five cards to you when I'm tired of doing it. There you go. Wow. That would be quite a quite a gift. I think I mentioned this to you in an email. My thesis advisor was Dr. Lauren Cordain. Oh, yeah, sure. We talked about that before I recall. Yeah. And so he talks about the days when you had a, a running shop um, right. over on Elizabeth Street, uh, right. just right around the corner from CSU. And he used to go over there and, and talk with you a lot because he was into running and he was a competitive runner. Um, yeah, that's right. He, he said your attention to detail, your ability to remember all the details was extraordinary. So I can actually picture you with a ton of, of, of cards with all the details, very well organized. <laughs> oh, my, my memory isn't probably as good as it used to be. So I, I spend more time now going back to the cards instead of working off my memory than, than I did at one time. Trevor grew up in the, in the age of computers. So I, I don't think you have no cards, do you, Trevor? But you'd probably be willing to use them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have zero <laughs> memory, so I have to write everything down. But. <laughs> I found the act of writing it down improves my recall. So uh, that actually, I think, is a, is a benefit to have to spend time with a with a card and a pencil or a pen in your hand and and actually interpret what the guy the what the authors were saying, you know, summarize it, and then write it down manually. There's something about that for me, anyway, that makes it more memorable. Let's dive into those three assets again: aerobic capacity, anaerobic threshold, and economy. Take it away, Joe. Start wherever you'd like. Maybe aerobic capacity first, and get into some of the details there. This is starting to get into kind of a little bit of the science, touching on the science of, of training. But as we've been talking about, really, the, these three things define who the athlete is when it comes to performance. Some athletes have really high levels in one of these or two of these, but seldom do we find an athlete who has very high levels in all three. That's a very, very unique person. So aerobic capacity, or is usually referred to as VO2 max, I think most athletes are probably um, have seen that a lot of times. And all it refers to is the, vo- the maximal volume of oxygen that an athlete's body can process uh, as intensity changes. And so the more oxygen an athlete can, can process at a very high intensity, like an all-out five-minute effort, is, uh, is indicative of um, uh, one of their abilities to, uh, to, to have good uh, performance. And so what we find is that the best athletes typically have very high aerobic capacities, although it's not the only indicator. There have been lots of good athletes who've had low aerobic capacities or low relative to the elite field, 
who have uh, been high performers. Uh, we were talking about running a while ago. I can go back to the 1970s with Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter, marathoners, both extremely good runners. And I knew a lot about those guys. They were like my heroes when I was much younger. Shorter had a VO2 max of something like about 72. It was the highest I ever saw him ever reported as being, which is, which is good by amateur standards. But by pro standards, it's rather pedestrian. And Bill Rogers had a VO2 max of 78 in the classic research I saw on him. And uh, that's pretty normal for um, high-performance uh, endurance athletes, especially males, uh, at those levels, 72, so 72 and 78. If we just had VO2 max as the only measure of how an athlete's performance is going to be determined, we would say that Rogers would win every time. But it wasn't the case. Shorter won a lot of times. In fact, he, you know, he took the, the, the gold medal, the silver medal in the Olympics in the marathon. He won Boston. He won the Fukuoka Marathon in Japan. He, he won races all over the world. Bill Rogers was the same way. He had won the Boston Marathon, I think, like five times, if I recall right. They, they called him Boston Belly. And uh, many, many other races around the world marathons. And when they went head-to-head, it was a toss-up. Uh, even though 78 and 72 should be a simple figure to figure out how it's going to turn out, that's not the only measure. What we what we found out was through some of the same research was that shorter was very economical, which is one of the three okay. measures, three assets as you called it a while ago. He was very economical. He didn't waste any energy when he ran. I went I one time back in 1989. I got to go for a run with both of those guys. They'd never run together except in races. And they were both going to be in Boulder. Shorter lived in Boulder, and Rogers was coming to visit. So I was invited by a friend who was going to be there, who knew both of them, to come over and go for a run with them. So the four of us go for a run in Boulder, Colorado. And so on one side of me, I got Frank Shorter running, and on the other side, I've got Bill Rogers running. And Shorter was like watching snow fall off of a limb of a tree, or the wind blow a leaf down the street, or or a gazelle running. He was just so effortless. So it was like, he was just like, you know, the wind. He was just, there, there was no effort being shown whatsoever. Extremely economical. He did not waste any energy. On the other side, I've got Rogers running and he's got arms flailing. He's kind of bouncing up and down. He kind of goes side to side as he runs. And so it was obvious to see what, what, why a 72 could sometimes beat a 78 as far as aerobic capacity. It was simply because of economy. Shorter didn't waste any energy at all, and Rogers wasted a tremendous amount of energy. So it was obvious just from seeing just from seeing these two guys beside me and knowing what I knew about them that that was an important measurement to look at was the economy of the athlete. In fact, what the research tends to show, almost all the research I've read on this topic shows this, that as the an athlete put it this way, an athlete with high economy typically has, I'm, I'm sorry, with high VO2 max, typically has low economy relative to other elite athletes. And those with lower aerobic capacity tend to have higher economy. So there's kind of like this thing that we're given at birth, which makes some athletes more economical and some more profound in terms of how, how they can use oxygen. And so there may be some genetics going on here. It could also be just the nature of how they're, they live their lives. There's lots. There's two variables here that, that would account for this, but nevertheless, there's something going on here which, which, which dates back to before they started doing the, the hard training, perhaps. Well, I was about to 
to bring that up because there's this great study in 2009 where they they did a five-year study of, of top pros and they were looking at vo2 max and in this case delta efficiency and found that over the five years the, these top cyclists uh, would improve in one or the other but it was an inverse relationship yeah it was almost like they one compensated for the other um, true. and the other thing so here's another thing that a lot of people don't know about that's really interesting is and I might get this mixed up, but when they did analysis of Sherpas and high altitude natives in the, in the, the Andes, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was the Sherpas had extraordinary VO2 maxes. Yes. Where the high, the, the, the high altitude Andes natives actually had very typical or very normal VO2 max, but were extraordinarily economical and, yeah. and efficient. Yeah. Good research. What does economical yeah. mean in a practical sense for, for people out there listening? Yeah, it's um, it comes down to a lot of things. For example, we can get into dig into the physiology of it, and it has to do with the muscle types in part. We've got slow twitch and fast twitch. Well, what's your ratio of slow twitch to fast twitch in your in your thigh muscle, for example, for a given athlete? And that's one measure of economy. Typically, endurance athletes have a high uh, proportion of uh, slow twitch muscles in the muscles they use in the sport whereas power athletes have a high proportion of uh, fast switch muscles. And so that, that's the sort of thing we could start then digging into almost everything about the physiology of the athlete and talk about, you know, which, which is the beneficial thing for the endurance athlete. These are things out of the athlete's control. We're just not going to change these things. We can look at, you know, body type. For example, there's research that's been shown that the best uh, cyclists have long thigh bones relative to the leg length whereas the best runners have long shin bones relative to leg length. So having a long shin bone is certainly not something you have control over, but it impacts your economy because in cycling, that puts you in a good position as far as being a lever. You're basically a lever when you're, you're using levers when you pedal the bike. And so that puts you in a situation where you've got more economical levers to use. Mm-hmm. And then it gets into things that, so that's just the physiology and the, uh, the physical side of it. And, and I'm just touching on, on the tip of the iceberg right there, gigantic amount of stuff that goes down below the surface on that topic. But then we get into skills. You know, this now becomes also a, a measure of economy is how does the, how does the athlete pedal? How, how good do they, how well do they pedal the bicycle? How do they corner? How do they do when they're out of the saddle? What's their economy like when they're climbing a hill versus on flat terrain? And basically economy is being measured now in terms of all this stuff in terms of how much oxygen does it take to achieve a certain level of performance. So we could take a, a, a cyclist, put them on a, uh, an ergometer, and have them pedal at 300 watts for five minutes and measure how much oxygen they use during that five minutes at 300 watts, have them go out and train in a certain way, come back six weeks later, do exactly the same test over again, and if they use less oxygen at 300 watts for five minutes than they did before, they're now more economical because oxygen basically is the currency we use to measure the cost of, of exercise um, for endurance athletes. And so basically that's, that's what, these, what economy is all about. To, to really go down a rabbit hole here, but Chris, you'd find this interesting. This is why that whole argument that if everybody dopes, it's an even playing field is, is wrong because you can really dope to improve your VO2 max but you can't dope to improve economy. So when you have somebody who's very economical with a low VO2 max, they're really going to benefit. 
somebody who has a naturally high VO2 max but isn't very economical, doping's not going to help them at all. Yep, you're right. Exactly right. All right. Should we uh, okay. jump over to anaerobic threshold at this point and talk a little bit more about that? Okay. Yeah, the, we've talked now about the aerobic capacity or VO2 max and economy. The third of these assets we're talking about that makes for a good endurance athlete is the anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold, which really comes down to how do we, how do we measure this, uh, this metric for this athlete or this asset. We'll get the details of that. But basically what this threshold is, is the point at which an athlete begins to redline. To keep this in language, I think we can all probably grasp pretty easily without getting all the science behind it. It's kind of like we're talking about the rating of perceived exertion scale of 0 to 10. And uh, let's say that 7 represents the anaerobic threshold. So it's relatively high, 10 being the highest. So the athlete, when they're at 7, they are at their anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold or even FTP. So they can go above that. But the problem is they can't hold it for too long if they get above it. And so the higher the athlete's anaerobic threshold is as a percentage of their VO2 max, the greater their performance is because they've got – so having a small amount of space between one's upper end, VO2 max, and one's threshold is really good as long as the VO2 max is really high. So, for example, uh, let, let's say that we've got two athletes both have the very same – VO2 max, it's, it's 70, we'll say. One of them has a, an aerobic capacity or anaerobic threshold, rather, of uh, let's say it's about 85% of 70, and the other has a percentage of 80% of VO2 max. I can guarantee you that the person with an 85% has got a great advantage when it comes to being doing something such as a long, steady effort like a long climb. Uh, that person has quite an advantage just in terms of that one metric that determines the outcome of climbs or, or time trials, whatever it may be, because that athlete, the 85 percenter, can operate at a very high percentage of VO2 max. And if the other athlete has the same VO2 max, but 80 percent is, is the anaerobic threshold, they're going to be off the back. So it, it's just, again, another way of measuring the athlete's physiology in terms of performance. While we had Lotto NL Yumbo rider Sepp Kuss in the studio, we asked him about the Cyclist Training Bible. Like many of us, Sepp read the book early in his career. What he remembers is the periodization strategies. However, like many in the newer generation, Sepp questions traditional periodization. Okay, next question, which could be a really short answer because it starts with a yes or no. And if the answer is no, then there is not a second question. <laughs> Uh, have you ever read uh, Joe Friel's The Cyclist Streaming Bible? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Then we got a question here. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the book, and did that have a, an impact on your training? Yeah, I, I I first bought that. I think I bought that book in oh, when I was pretty young, actually, because yeah, I was I was interested. And um, yeah, I'm trying to think back on. You're still pretty young, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the idea that you you need to keep. Like his, his philosophy about, uh, tapering you, or about keeping your, your intensity maintained, um, I think is super, at least for me, that's when I perform best in a race is if, if I do, you know, really, really good training and then drop the volume down quite a bit, but maintain that in, or even increase that intensity. Otherwise, cause I've had, I've had both situations and I, and I know people who do 
do the, the taper process differently. And yeah, for me, I, I really like to maintain yeah. that, that high end. So you said you bought that book very young. So I'm guessing that was probably one of your first training books, if not your first training yeah, book. How yeah. come you, uh, you chose that book? I, I don't know. Maybe that was the only one that was on the, that is was that probably the first like real accessible training book. I think that's the book you see on any average Joe cyclist probably has that, that book. Is there anything else that you remember about that book that, that sort of influenced how you ride and, and train? I remember it was pretty uh, periodized. I guess I don't necessarily agree with all of that. I believe in, in like really specific. I, I think you can have specificity throughout the year. I don't think, I don't think there should be distinct phases of. So you don't like the idea of a dedicated base period, a dedicated. Not, not really. I, I think, I think you can, I think you can incorporate so much into that base period that's, that's specific, but not specific in a way that's going to fry you. I think there's, there's so much like, like technique work you can do and you know you can you can still train your lactate buffering capacity but you can do it you don't have to do it at the the power you would do in july you know you, you still train the neuromuscular systems all that i think and then and then you have more to build on when you actually truly approach those different different systems so for me i like to have specificity all through all through the year yeah which is actually where, where it seems like things are heading. Mm-hmm. Just this this concept that actually when you look at top pros, their distribution of high intensity and low intensity stays actually pretty consistent throughout mm-hmm. the year. Yeah. You know, they'll say the same thing. The types of intervals I do during the season are different from the intervals I'm going to do in, in December and January. Right. I'm always doing some high intensity. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, just because you're doing, like you're, 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 whatever power you can do VO2 is always going to be different, but yeah, if if you, if you come, if you start doing that interval in May, it's, it's a complete shock to the system. Right. You know, even, even if you are not training a certain system for like two weeks, you can, it's going to feel, at least for me, it's going to feel really foreign two weeks later. Particularly a shock for you because you start racing in February. So if you start doing interval work in May, yeah. You're going to have some very unhappy races. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be some, some interesting, <laughs> big, big explosions out on the course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fact that many newer pros have started using less traditional periodization strategies may be why Joe added a whole new chapter on different approaches in his book. Let's get back to the interview and hear what Joe has to say about it. Before we let you go, Joe, let's let's talk about one of the big topics we haven't really we've touched upon, but we haven't gone into much detail on. And I know it's, it's something that's crucial to the book, crucial to your philosophy, and really a concept that's revolutionized cycling training, and that's periodization. Yeah, we go back to the the first edition of the book I, I wrote back in about '96. In that book, I I only talked about one form of periodization. It's called uh, linear periodization. It's the most basic. It's the simplest type. It's the one that has been around the longest. Uh, but in the more recent edition, this fifth edition, I talk about several forms of uh, periodization, about four or five of them, and uh, talk about why they are, why they've got merits of their own and why an athlete might want to choose one over the other. So let me kind of take that back and explain why I made that change in the more recent edition. In 96, when I wrote the first book, 
the concept of periodization had only been around in Western countries, the United States and Europe and so forth, uh, Western Europe, since about 1972. Uh, that was when we began, to, uh, athletes at the highest level began to become aware of this concept of periodization, which the Eastern Bloc countries had been using for, gosh, some 20 years, or in some cases, you could argue, it goes back even farther than that. But they were pretty well into understanding how to do this. And so by 72, we came along, Western civilization, Western athletes came along and began to apply this to their training using the most simple concept. But when I wrote the first book in 96, it really had not trickled down very well at all to the average um, racer. So I decided I needed to explain periodization, but I didn't want to go into all the details. So I just kind of like saved the most simple version just because I wanted to introduce the concept of nothing else, which is called linear periodization, which is very simple. You, you start training roughly five or six months before your race. You go through a base period in which you, in, which you really emphasize duration, volume. And then you begin to switch over to in the last 12 weeks or so before the, the event you're training for switch over to emphasizing high-intensity training. And that that roughly is the linear concept, but it's by no means the only way of doing this. There are several ways of doing it, and I describe actually three others in the book. It kind of touches on the fourth one, which really get, without getting into a lot of detail on it, but there, there are three others I discussed in some detail in the book. Those were alternatives to linear periodization, and they work for some athletes in certain conditions, as opposed to working and doing linear periodization, they'd be better off using another method. And so I talked about in the book how to go about deciding which is the best best method given your unique situation. And that, that I think, is one of the key topics of the book is understanding how to, how to do this, because that kind of brings us back then to the whole idea of planning, which is really the heart of the book is planning for your, uh, your race. So you do a good job of performing. And this is a, the starting step for periodization is deciding how am I going to periodize? Uh, how, how am I going to prepare for this race? What methodology will I use? And so that's what I discuss in, in a couple of chapters in, in the middle of the book here also, is, are these uh, various concepts as opposed to simply just one. So really the the thing I, I found very interesting or, or really liked when you talked about the periodization was, was both this increase in specificity, but you also... So we won't unfortunately have any time to, to go into the, the six key um, assets or abilities that, that you talk about in the book, but you divide them into basic abilities and advanced abilities. And one of the things I really loved in the book when you were talking about periodization is you said the, the three basic abilities, you could do those all, all year long. You could keep doing those. You'll never burn out. You'll never truly fatigue. The advanced abilities, which are what you need to win races, those affect you. You can only do them so long before you start to burn out. And it seems like a lot of your focus in the periodization was, it's not just what is the right training, but how do you time that training so that you can hit the right form at the right time and avoid burnout? Yeah. Yeah. You summarized it quite well. Yeah. That, that really is uh, the heart of the discussion is what you just described. All right, Joe. So you're on the clock. You've got one minute to, uh, Summarize a, a lifetime of work in this book. We're, we're giving you a very difficult final task. So you're, you've got one minute. Let's hear uh, your tips for uh, our listeners out there. Well, I think the number one tip for an athlete would be to uh, real, really come to realize 
what you're all about. Who are you as an athlete? And uh, without trying to muddy up the world any, that comes down to, to being able to do certain things. Uh, athletes, typically cyclists, excel at climbing, time trialing, sprinting, or all-around performance. Those are the three phenotypes commonly discussed. The athlete needs, needs to decide where they are there. Then they need to decide what it is they want to train for and how their phenotype compares with their, their goal. If there's a gap between their phenotype and their goal, in other words, a weakness, then they need to uh, come up with a procedure, a method for improving that. I call those limiters. How can they improve their limiters? And that then leads us into the whole idea of, of preparation for the race, planning, laying out a schedule, periodization, all of that sort of thing. And uh, so the whole topic just kind of blends in together once the athlete knows who they are and what it is they want to achieve. That, that's always a starting point. Excellent. I'm going to put myself on the clock for, for a, a minute. You know what I love about this book is it, it, it's something that uh, builds in a novice a foundation of understanding of, of a lot of interesting concepts. And somebody who has some basic knowledge of things, it takes them a step further. It, you know, I was I was sort of thinking about how people might dive into this book and get the most out of it. And I think I might have to recommend Joe's method, which is every morning you wake up, you read a chapter and you summarize it on the back of a three by five note card. You sort of commit it to your own way of thinking about it. And there's just so many amazing and complex things. And there's so many balances that take place in, in training science when you start to start to, to really dive into it. And it goes without saying that's why Joe has written now five versions of the book. He's introducing even in this fifth one something uh, uh, new to, to sports science, this this concept of how does adaptation take place and some of these things that we're, we've, we really don't know a lot about right now and we will hopefully over the next couple decades learn a lot more about and it will advance all of our training and performances from there. So it's just one of those amazing, it is the cyclist training Bible. Yeah, that, that's more than a minute, but it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's hard to summarize such a tome in, in such a short amount of time. So, uh, you. you're welcome. Trevor, do you have a, a one minute summary as well to, to, to give to listeners? Okay. So I'm going to start by saying, um, you got me with lactic acid. Uh, <laughs> When I read you saying it's not lactic acid, it's hydrogen ions, I was like, oh, thank you. But all, all joking aside, as we mentioned earlier, Chris and I talked beforehand. I guess I was coming across as pretty excited. But a big part of that reason is, you know, two years of doing this podcast now, we've had a, a lot of top physiologists. We've had a lot of top coaches come into the, the show and, and give their philosophies, give their approaches. And there's themes that have been coming out from, from all these experts that have come on our show that, that we've been uh, trying to get across and, and continue to repeat throughout the show. And the thing I said to Chris before we started this podcast is this book is really a summary of all that. Mm-hmm. And you see both the, the science, the, there's a huge amount of science behind your book, but you also see the experience side of it. And you, you pull it together really well, which, which we really enjoy. And I think my, my one recommendation I have to the listeners, if you get this book, is just know where you are at in your career as a cyclist or your time as a cyclist. Because uh, this book, I mean, 
you, you get complex. You were just talking about periodization and you get into inverse periodization and all the different types. Don't, if you're a first year cyclist, don't pick up this book and try to do everything in it. I would say, hang on to the book. Start with the basics. He talks about in the winter doing the, the, just doing the, the basic skills or the basic abilities. And maybe that's all you do for your first year. Don't try to apply some sort of advanced periodization strategy in your first year. But as you progress, come back to the book and start applying more and more. Don't try to do it all at once. Very good. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Chris Case, Sepp Koos, Frank Overton, and of course, Joe Friel, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>